The Photo Vault. A journey into vernacular photography, archives and photo books. Hi and welcome to this episode of The Photo Vault. Today we are in Budapest, Hungary. Divided by the Danube River, it has two very distinguishable city parts, Buda and Pest, and holds cultural elements of all its history dating back to the Celts and Romans, the humanist renaissance of the 15th century, followed by nearly 150 years of Ottoman rule, later being the co-capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. After the Second World War, it became part of the Eastern Bloc and now is the capital of the Hungary as we know it. The city is very well known for its people and the food like goulash or the stunning thermal baths. But it also gains major popularity when it comes to vernacular photography and archives. I was invited in November last year to participate in a talk event titled Talks on Everyday Imaging, the Analog and Digital Realm of the Vernacular. It was organized by the Eidolon Center, a relatively new institution that focuses on everyday photography. In this episode, we will dive into this talk event with speakers such as Jeffrey Batchen, Joanna Zielinska, Joachim Schmidt, Annabella Pollen, and other distinguished artists and academics that give a deeper understanding and perspective on vernacular photography. Basically, this episode is the crash course on vernacular photography. I also sat down with Rosa Tekla-Cilagi, one of the founders of the Eidolon Center, as I was curious to hear how this whole movement came about. Uh, we are kind of a group of friends who created a book two or three years ago. And the book is titled Forte Pamaste, selected by Szabolcs Barakonyi. And it's a, it's a book that collects uh, our favorite images from the Hungarian archive, Fortepan. And it became a huge book. It's almost uh, 700 pages and it contains 333 photographs from Fortepan. And why we were creating that book, uh, we are all... Sabolj Barakoni, Diochimu and me, we are all vernacular photography enthusiasts, but creating that book made us fall in love in this genre a lot more than we were in love before. And as we as we did the book, it was quite a long project. We worked on it two, for two years almost. Uh, we had a lot of discussions and we had a lot of ideas that came from the original archive, Fotopan, and looking at those images. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, in Hungary... We have we have uh, this vernacular photography research heritage that that started in the eighties. Uh, there were already others who created institutions to collect everyday images. Then you have a more artistic perspective represented by Sándor Kardos, who created the Horus Archive. So the Hungarian vernacular heritage is 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 quite tapped into already. So that also inspired us. And then we really wanted to continue this work. And the reality was, uh, as we had new and new ideas, you really need the funding to be able to realize the projects. Yes, definitely. <laughs> in the way you, you dreamed them. So it took us some time to realize the best idea to create a center, an institution. And it can act as an umbrella for us. So it's not jumping from project to project that, then you can build a, a longer plan, you can think ahead and you can really use your resources wisely regarding it's not just a project that no one will hear about it ever again, then it, you can build up a narrative. 
So, so Jörg Schimo had the idea, he was the one who, who solved the problem with the idea that, yeah, let's create an institution because, uh, because there is no institution in Hungary who works closely with vernacular photography. And then we took our time because uh, I wasn't sure that there is no other institution like we are planning in the world. But what we realized that there are already, of course, a lot of people who are interested in these images and you have collections and you have artists and research groups and even big museums collect sometimes vernacular photography. Sometimes they just receive them and then they decide to safekeep them and you have, you know, the water collection, coin collection. So it's a wide array of already existing projects, but there is no other institution that's a proper big institution, a museum that deals with all of this pictorial heritage. So that really, you know, made us say, let's do this. And then this January in 2073, oh my God, 2023, <laughs> I'm thinking ahead, you know, <laughs> we made the decision to, to create the brand. Uh, and I, I chose the name Eidolon because uh, in Roland Barthes' book, uh, he refers to the word Eidolon as a, as a ghost. And I do think when you think about vernacular photography, it's, uh, it's all of our collected past and everyone who lived before us is in these images. So I, 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 I thought when I, and when we build an institution, I really would like to focus on the images themselves and on what histories you can you can relive through them. And I want to put these people who created the images and these people who are in the images in the focus. So that that's how Eidolon Center for Everybody, Everyday Photography came alive. That was Rosa from the Eidolon Center. I had to look up the word Eidolon which I had never heard before and certainly did not remember from Roland Barthes' writing. A wonderful word that means ghost, spirit, but also idol, double, phantom, or simply image. And I think that sums up a lot of the elements we talk about in the photographic field and discourse on vernacular. Would have been a good title for this podcast too, I guess. Jeffrey Betchen, an Oxford historian very well known for his work on vernacular photography, gave the opening talk and proposed the three following topics. First, the notion that vernacular photography speaks a universal language. Second, the claim that vernacular photography has been, and I quote from the website, traditionally excluded or downplayed by curators and historians. And third, the consistent association of vernacular photography with banality. His last point about the banal, Jeffrey elaborates on in a previous podcast episode we released. Maybe one of the most striking points he made was this here. But what about photographs of nothing? How do I make something of them? One of the strangest series of photographs held in the collections of the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles comprises a set of identically sized daguerreotypes. Each of them is laconically described by the museum catalogue as a daguerreotype plate with no image. This isn't to say there is nothing to see. Indeed, perhaps in the absence of a distracting pictorial presence, one is able to see even more than usual. So looking at nothing might help us not only to look at what we see or expect to see, but also what the thing we see is made of, which Jeffrey elaborates on. Fast forward a century or so, 
and we encounter yet another type of photograph beloved by ordinary customers, but not much given much attention by historians. Street photography is a genre of commercial photographic practice where people walking in the street are photographed without their permission and are then offered the opportunity to buy a copy of that photograph. In the 1930s and 40s, you couldn't have walked down a major street in any Western city and not be snapped by such a photographer. The street photographers Jeffrey talks about are not documentarians like, let's say, Walker Evans. He means commercial, of sorts, portrait photographers who set up at busy streets and just snapped people, approaching them afterwards and hoping they would buy the photo. This was, as mentioned, very popular in the 50s, from New York City to Mexico City to Vienna and Istanbul. I realized while listening to Jeffrey Batchen's talk that he and I share a lot of interests, and I very much appreciated his inclusion of the postcard in his talk. The postcard officially began in 1869, when the Austrian post office issued a plain card already imprinted with a stamp. The stamp side was intended for an address, and the other side was meant for any written message. Three million of these invitingly blank cards were sold in the first three months of their existence. This was despite fears that such a mode of correspondence, where the writing was displayed in public for anyone to read, would erode all sense of privacy and decorum, as well as literacy, messages having to be short and pithy. Postcards therefore represented a collapse of the distinction between public and private, and from the 1890s, when picture postcards began to be issued, a collapse also of the difference between the visual and the written. Now that is fascinating, that the same discussion, fears and thoughts we have now with social media and messaging services was once applied to the postcard. So the postcard is the grandmother of Instagram, clearly. A very interesting contributor to the talk was Miklos Tomashi, who runs an archive in Istanbul, and I let him introduce it. Fortepan is an online photo archive where you can browse and download nearly 200,000 images. It takes its name from the only Hungarian-made negative film, a cheap and popular material, one that used to be manufactured in the Forte factory. All our images are free to download and use for any purpose, even for market products. As such, it is the most important Hungarian photo archive. Every year, 15,000 new photos are added to the collection in high resolution under CC license. The archive was funded in 2010 with my friend Akos Sepesi, a former classmate from high school. At that time, there were 5,000 photos in the collection. We had been collecting photos since the late 80s at flea markets and from friends. In 2010, we felt that it would be interesting to digitize all the photos we had collected and display them online. The plan was to digitize every single picture. We had about 30,000 images because we expected every picture to be interesting. After a week of scanning, we realized that this was far from the case. The collection was full of uninteresting or technically bad photos. We felt that all these crappy photos overshadowed the interesting ones. So we started to sort through them. Our method of working has been the same ever since. We try to select the interesting, important, meaningful frames 
and leave out anything that doesn't touch us, me, personally. Now, this enormous archive is basically a best-of selection by one person and represents maybe the most important picture resource of a country. Now, while Miklos's approach is absolutely understandable from a practical point of view, as digitizing everything about everything is impossible, it does pose certain questions. That, for example, Jeffrey Batchen raises by saying, there is no banal image. That would mean that scanning and archiving the banal is just as important. I will add a link to the Fortepan archive in the text section, and you should have a look at its fantastic journey as Miklos creates a timeline. This is of sorts the essence of the archive, a reference to which time the images were taken. The archive ends in 1990, and it has a reason why that is the case. 1990 marked the change of regime in Hungarian and Eastern European history. In 1990, socialism suddenly ended. Looking back 20 years later, it seemed, and still seems to me, that history itself ended in 1990. What we have had since then is the present. And as such is not history, but part of the present. Looking through the photos, it really makes sense. As an editor, you can tell almost immediately from an unknown photo whether it was taken before or after 1990. Our 20th century ended in 1990. During the day of conversations, we had a huge variety of speakers, such as Michal Schumik from Prague, who talked about the Lomography movement. I will add a link to his talk as well. Nigel Martin Shepherd was there too, who told us about his fantastic family museum, an archive of British family albums. He has a very different approach to collecting. He specifically focuses on narratives created by families in their albums. Each album, its own voice, its own universe, with a vernacular language. Professor Annabella Pollen talked about her work on mass photography and how rejects are a very peculiar, yet important part of photography. She also dived into the development of the photo industry and how this posed ethical issues. As camera ownership expanded and incomes improved throughout the 20th century, so too did photographic quantities. In 1976, famously Britain's hottest summer, holiday snaps grew like never before. The workers who produced them, however, toiled in windowless buildings without air conditioning where overtime was compulsory. In the Grunwick Photo Processing Lab in Wilston in London, the long hours and low pay suffered by the majority women, 80% Asian and 10% Afro-Caribbean workers, came to a head in 1976 with a mass walkout of all 440 employees in a strike that lasted two years. And this strike highlighted the poor treatment of migrant workers, but also the conflict showed trade union picket tactics and police brutality, but it also revealed much of how the mail-order photo processing business worked. A great little push for us to look behind the facade of industry and ask ourselves, who is the person that creates the world we consume? I would say that the workers Annabella mentioned back in the days processing film would be the faceless workers for Instagram and Facebook that monitor and sort through posts in anonymous spaces no one has ever heard about. 
The Great Hack or The Cleaners are two very good documentaries talking about that issue. We also have a podcast episode with Annabella Pollen that's already out, where you can hear more about her interests and work on the failed photography. So to conclude then, the erroneous photograph where the subject is obscured or beheaded might not be a failed photograph. It may, in fact, be a photograph that tells us about cultural expectations of success and error, accident and intention, wit and ambition, personal experience and business strategies, age abilities and camera technologies. Unwanted photographs may become wanted if we recognize that they provide photographic lessons and mistakes we can learn from. I would say we are definitely at a time where the mistake and its charms have become even fashionable. Looking at commercial advertisements that now reproduce these mistakes to create aesthetic narratives for a young audience that grew up after film and its accidental beauty. Going a step further that day, Joanna Zielinska, a reader, thinker and writer, talked about on our photographic future. Um, more images are being produced, shared and seen today than ever in history. We are constantly photographing and being photographed, with imaging machines, large and small, capturing our every move. In the publicity for the Samsung at S21 Galaxy Ultra 5G phone in 2021, Samsung announced that they were enacting a revolution in photography. Tomasz Dvořák and Yusi Parika proclaimed through the title of their 2021 edited collection that photography has gone off the scale. While Lev Manovich, whose cultural analytics lab and the accompanying book have investigated how we can see a billion images, declared photography is young again. In the meantime, in 2021, Andrew Dudney, co-director of the Center for the Study of the Networked Image at London South Bank University, um, declared, published a book with a title that is also a make no mistake exhortation, Forget Photography. While Ariel Goldberg and Yazan Khalili, who were co-chairs of the photography department at Bard College, declared, we stopped taking photos. So something is clearly going on uh, with and around photography. Picking up on those opposing statements and affects, like, is it dying? Is it new again? Is it young again? Has it, should we forget it? Should we really remember it? The notion of our photographic future that frames my talk and the forthcoming book on which this talk is based is something of a dare. It probes this polarized decisiveness around photography and other forms of mechanical image making while suggesting that photography can't be so easily forgotten or abandoned because it has been actively involved in the shaping of our present onto-epistemological horizon and its technical infrastructures. Now there's certainly something going on. Whether it is about the mass production or auto-production and sharing of images we have today, or the more recent AI-generated images. In either case... A photo is not only a photo anymore. Yet the photographic image today is not just seen, and most certainly not always by humans. It's always tagged, categorized, copied, coded, transmitted, networked, and platformed as part of the operations of the perception machine. 
The photographic image therefore does something, relates to another image or data sequence, triggers the execution of a command within the machine, rather than just meaning something to humans. So the vernacular image is, not, is also um, yields itself to non-vernacular users, you could say. My overarching proposition is that not only does photography have a future, but also that it actually is the future. As we increasingly experience reality with, through, and as photography, the photographic medium functions as an active agent in shaping both us and the world. With the incredibly fast-growing AI image-making progress, I wonder if it is not the field of vernacular, let's say family photos and meeting of friends, that will stay actual photographs, as so many commercial photographs and movies and so on will be produced by the likes of DALI, Midjourney, and other AI generators. The closing of this talk event was done by an artist who is maybe one of the most prolific everyday photography artists, Joachim Schmidt. I don't know why I felt the need to stand by the X, but judging from everyone else, it would appear to be the thing to do. And I think this is the perfect caption for 99% of the photographs you find on photo sharing sites. People take pictures for no particular reason, except that it appears to be the thing to do. And that is super interesting. That has not happened, let's say, in analog photography. It's something that only happens in the world of digital mass production. That's Joachim talking about a series of images of people taking photos of themselves at the place where JFK was shot. Joachim took us through his work, especially his deep research on sharing platforms like Flickr, where photographic explorers, like himself, find patterns and rhythms and habits of photographs that become a sociological study of behavior. He turned to digital platforms for the following reason. And But the other problem... I had was working with flea market imagery. I was always something like half a century behind my own time. And that I found more and more problematic because I was more interested in working in my own time than in solving my grandfather's problems. Uh, so uh, I concluded that and 10 years later, I returned to the same questions, but of course, the situation had changed dramatically. So my picture pool was this site. Photo sharing site Flickr gives us virtually access to an unlimited number of photographs. The number of uploads had increased so dramatically that every single day more photographs are being uploaded than any human being could ever look at in a lifetime. What was very interesting during the conference was that we talked as much about archives and the vernacular of the past, what I'm usually interested in and work with, as the present and the future of vernacular. Going back to my conversation with Rosa, who initiated this conference, I was curious what was behind this idea of setting up such an international day of vernacular photography. That's a lot of energy and budget that went into bringing all these people together. Yeah, so with, with Aydan Center, we really, we really aim for international relevance. And I know, know it's a huge statement, but uh, 
But we made the choice to operate in English. So our website for the center and the online magazine, our, our adult journal is also written in English because we would like to reach out to as many people as we can. And unfortunately, English is still the common language uh, regarding these things. I would be very happy to create a, a Hungarian language uh, site and you know reach millions, but that won't happen. So... When when I started to work on the concept of the center and, and, and decide what we do, I realized that we really need to build relationships with the people who are already, you know, have more experience than us and you are who are already like actually collecting and, and seeing more images than we do and you know, know the international scene a tiny bit better than we do because of course I read everything that you can read about vernacular photography and I tried to look at as many images as I could browsing through archives, but uh, but I really wanted to have the chance to, you know, uh, set up a narrative as a first conference or talk event. I don't really like the wording conference. I try to stick with talk event, but but it's, it's hard to do. It's difficult to do. So So the main goal was to have an event where us can meet up with you guys, with, with the people who are really professional in the field. And I wanted to show to our readers and to the Hungarian scene all the ideas that we already have about vernacular photography. So I tried to put together the, the, the speaker's team uh, going by that idea. So we had people who talked about family photography, the paper-based image, but I do find it really interesting that the digital vernacular photography and the whole Instagram scene and, you know, the connected imaging thing uh, creates uh, daily and daily new everyday photographs. So, so that was the main goal with the conference to show a wide array of ideas and, and researches that are connected with vernacular photography. And of course, I think it will create new ideas to our readers and it did create a lot of new ideas uh, in us as a team at Eidolon. So, so it was really nice to, to sit through that day and, and hear what everybody's doing. The Eidolon Center has an excellent website with a journal that brings new work, practical and theoretical, for free to readers. Check out the link we have in the text section for it. All the talks I mentioned and more are also online. You can listen to them in full length. So, Budapest, Hungary, may be the new capital of vernacular photography. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Photovolt. Lukas Birk says, wie sind Latasha? <laughs>